Hey, if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 10 and then flip over to Luke chapter 15. We've been doing the New Testament through 90. I hope and pray you've been encouraged as you've gone through that. There's been some questions asked like, what's this mean? What's this look like? If you're not reading along, you want to read along, you can grab one of the reading plans at the back tables. What we did or what we set up was this idea of a chronological reading plan for you to go through. So there's going to be things as you're reading, you're going to be like, well, this is the same thing I just read in Luke, or this is the same thing I just read in Matthew. Why am I reading it again? And what we wanted to do was to kind of give you an idea of how the, the life of Jesus went and then the ministry of the church goes uh, throughout the New Testament so that we can kind of put things together in a chronological fashion or as close to chronologically as we can. And so as you've been reading um, this week, you've spent a lot of time in Luke, some in John. Matter of fact, John was a, a large portion of a couple days, but Luke has been the main focus recently. And I want to flip Luke chapter 10, and then we're going to jump to Luke chapter 15. And here's the reason why. I want to lay out a couple of things. So let's read, and then I'll explain it. Listen to Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 2. It says, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others. So this is uh, apart from the, the disciples he called. He appoints 72 others, and he sent them out two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. And he told them, the harvest is what? Plentiful. If you have a version, it may say abundant, right? But the workers are few. So ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So there's Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 2, this idea of this abundant harvest that's about to take place. Jesus says, listen, well, I'm sending you out two by two into the towns and villages and cities ahead of me. You're going to go together. You're going to work together. Right? You're going to seek and pray to the Lord. Why? Because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. In other words, there's this abundant harvest out there for us to be a part of, but yet there's also this same adage that takes place. The workers are what? Few. And so as we jump into this text, I want you to think about it in this fashion, right? What is my role in working or in the working of the harvest? If the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, what is God calling me to do as an individual to contribute to or take part in the harvest? You know, I, I kind of go back. Anybody ever remember the, the, the red hen She's, she's cooking. Do you guys remember the story of the little red hen? She's cooking and she wants to cook things and the, the kids don't want to come along and help. You guys know what I'm talking about? Remember that story? No, you don't remember the story, right? She's, she's baking something and everybody wants a part of it. Like there's a dessert. She goes to bake the dessert. Everybody wants a piece of the dessert. She's like, you're not getting any because you didn't what? You didn't help. You didn't participate. And likewise, there's a lot of people, I believe in the Christian faith that oftentimes sit back and they're very comfortable we're good at being Pharisees. In other words, we're good at having the standards. We're good at having these desires that we say that people need to follow. But when it comes to doing the work of the harvest, it's like, yeah, we'll save that for the big dogs. And so we'll jump into Luke chapter 15. And I want you to see in Luke chapter 15, what ends up taking place as a result of Jesus and his miracles, all right? So now here's what happens. Luke chapter 15, we're gonna read verses one through 10. We're not gonna read the whole chapter, but I will talk about the parable of the lost son a little bit throughout the sermon. This is what he says, starting in verse one. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear who? 
him, Jesus. So they're gathering around to hear Jesus. And then here's the religious people. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Isn't that like the religious people, right? Let's look at everybody else and claim what's wrong with everybody else who's coming to follow Jesus. Look at Jesus as a problem because he's hanging out with the wrong crowd. He's around the wrong individuals. He's attracting the wrong people. And so the Pharisees have a problem, and they say, this man welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. It's not just the fact that he hung out with them. He actually spent time with them. He invited them or ate with them at certain places. They were invited into situations and circumstances where Jesus was eating with his disciples, and at the same time, these tax collectors and sinners were with them. Listen to verse 3. It says, then Jesus told them this parable, right? He's telling both the outcasts, the tax collectors and sinners, as well as those who are religious zealots, he says this parable to both of them. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and he loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. And then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. Matter of fact, if you like to underline, highlight, and some things like that, I want to encourage you to underline that statement right there. Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Verse 8, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, listen to what she says again, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there is more rejoicing, or there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Today, as we jump into this, I want you to think about what it means when we think about this idea of being lost and found. Later, or earlier this week, sorry, um, I'd been working, doing a number of things, and I walked up to my wife, and I was like, I cannot find my pocket knife anywhere. And she goes, well, what did you do with it? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> Anybody ever lost something? You're like, I have no clue what happened to it. Like, and this knife means a lot to me, and here's the reason why. Sarah's mom and dad, right after we got married, we were living in Bolivar, Missouri. Sarah's mom and dad, on their way out from Indiana, out to visit us, would stop right outside Lebanon, Missouri, is this, like, pocket knife outlet store that sells knives. And on their way out, my father-in-law just, I, you know, he loved to go into tools and knives and things like that. As a matter of fact, he's got a collection of knives in his house and stuff like that. But on his way out, they stopped. And while they were there, he bought me this pocket knife. And so I'm like freaking out. I mean, this pocket knife is not something that's super expensive. It's not something that's just, oh man, everybody's going to want this pocket knife. It's just, this pocket knife means a lot to me right? It's got, it's got priceless value. Why? Because my father-in-law, number one, is no longer with us. Number two, he bought it for me as a gift. No strings attached, which he did quite often. He would come out and he'd bring me tools. This was like his love language. I would, I would venture to say that. His love language was, I've got my son-in-law here who 
really tries hard to do some work, so I'm going to help him out with some of the tools, right? When we first got married, he's like, I feel sorry for this kid, so we'll just help him out, right? But he gives me this pocket knife, and so I'm losing my ever-loving mind over the week going, I cannot find this knife. I text Marie at one point. I'm like, did I let you borrow my pocket knife one day while we were at church? She's like, no, I'm taking it. You lost it. Yeah, I lost it, and I can't find it. I go to bed, can't find it. Get up the next morning, can't find it. Go to work, can't find it. Spend all day thinking about the stinking pocket knife that I can't find. And I want you to think about this because the pocket knife has a lot of value to me. The pocket knife has a lot of significance to me. And so as I think about this, the knife may not seem like there's a lot to you. As a matter of fact, some people might even would have seen it and said, Psh, what is this? It's a big knife. You know, it's a knife. It's a pocket knife. It's no big deal. It has no value. But listen, the value to me was priceless. Why? Because he gave it to me. And what I want you to see today as we dig into these parables where Jesus is trying to show the value of people, that he, the, the value he has on the people he has created. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about who is Jesus and what, what is the significance of him. He is the one who spoke everything into existence. He's the creator of all things and all things hold together through him. And now he comes to this section of scripture. Where he tells us about this harvest and then he shows us the value of people or things that are lost. And it's important for us to see that no matter where you look or no matter how far you look or how far gone you are, that we have to understand, listen, that Jesus values people to the point of sacrificing greatly. Number one, we talk about Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, but to the point of leaving 99 people who are safe in order to chase after the one who's gone. And what I want you to understand as we dig in and look at this text is this. This has to be the value that we place upon people in our community, at our jobs, in our families, is that we're willing, listen, we're willing to give up the comfort and the safety that we oftentimes have to go after those who, listen, are outcasts and sinners. That's the whole point of what happens in, in, in chapter 15 in the first verse. Look at what happens with Jesus. Jesus attracts who? The tax collectors and sinners. Your Bible might even say the outcasts, those who were neglected by the rest of society. Now, let's be honest. Let's be real. A tax collector is usually a swindler, right? It's like not somebody you're going to invite into your house and say, hey, I'm giving you the key to my safe. Right? This guy would probably clean out your safe and walk away with the money. Why? Because they were very oftentimes dishonest to the point of saying, well, I'm, I'm going to pad my pockets a little bit more, so I'm going to charge these people more in taxes and things like that. Jesus attracts these tax collectors and sinners. They're gathering around to hear him, and you have to think about why they're gathering. Jesus has fed 4,000. Jesus has fed 5,000. He's healed the lame. He's healed the blind. He's healed the mute. He's, he's cast out demons from those who were demon-possessed. There's all kinds of things that are going on, and these people begin to go, what the heck is going on? Who is this guy? What does he offer? What does he bring? And so listen, when I think about my knife and losing it, it drives me absolutely bad. But I want you to think about it this way. You may feel like you're useless. 
You may feel like you have no intrinsic value. You may have been abused by the sin in your life. You maybe have been neglected or rejected by those who are religious zealots, maybe even in the past in churches. And you can sit back and you say you're lost. And so I believe there's two angles we look at it. Maybe you're a person who follows Jesus and you can say, I want to make sure that I am not a stumbling block to hinder those or stop those or, or prevent those who are lost from finding Jesus, right? We don't want to be that stumbling block. But likewise, I want to have the right attitude. And so we'll unpack a little bit of that. The other thing to think about is this. Maybe you're a person who says, listen, I've never put my faith and trust in Jesus. So as a result of what Jesus teaches here, he's going to show you, and I believe it's one of those things that we can dig in, the value that you have to him. That the world may say you're useless, valueless, purposeless, but Jesus says, don't listen to what the rest of the world says. Your value, your purpose, and your meaning comes not from who you think or who they think you are, but from who I say you are. So here's the big statement. If you remember anything else today, I want you to remember this, that God's pursuit of the lost is relentless because his love for outcasts is unmatched. God's pursuit of the lost is relentless because his love for outcasts is unmatched. Matter of fact, if we were to dig in and understand most of this, all of us in some way, shape, or form could probably identify as an outcast. There are places and points and times of our life where maybe you felt outcast, neglected, rejected, refused, tossed to the side. And Jesus says, listen, my heart is this, that I'm going to pursue after those who are lost in a relentless love because my love for them is unmatched by anybody else. And so I believe that we have to understand if that harvest is plentiful, abundant, massive. Matter of fact, I oftentimes say this, and I want to encourage our church about this. There is no reason to fight over people who are going to church. Because the truth of the matter is, the church wasn't called to reach saved people. The church is called to what? Reach lost people. To stand on the truth of the gospel. We grow. We're called to be disciples. So in other words, we're called to follow Jesus. We grow to learn to love Jesus, to follow him, to be obedient to what he's called us to do. But the church's role or the church's goal has always been to reach lost people to stand on the truth of the gospel, to present the gospel, the light of Jesus, just as we kind of looked at last week, that we don't hide it under a bushel, we don't hide it under anything else, but we stand as a city on a hill, like a lighthouse in the darkest times to the ships that are getting ready to hit the storms of life and the rocks and the waves that are going about them. We stand and hold the truth of the gospel out front. So there are three lessons I believe that we can learn from this simple chapter, chapter 15, probably one of my favorite chapters in the gospel of Luke because of what it conveys and what picture it presents. So listen, this is what he says. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So what are you supposed to do? Pray to the Lord for more workers in the harvest. And here's what's crazy about that. Here's what I believe wholeheartedly. When I pray, God changes my heart to line up with his. So here's what's going to happen. When I pray and say, God, you need to send out more workers into the harvest. Guess what he's going to do? Now, hopefully he's going to change your heart. That your heart looks and goes, well, I can't hang around these people, or I, 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 can't, I can't share with these people, or I'm afraid of what they're going to do or how they're going to respond to me when I share the gospel. 
Jesus basically says, I am sending you out. Matter of fact, there's a part that we read this week. I am sending you out like sheep, sheep among wolves. And he tells us that we need to go and do this. And so I believe there are three lessons learned in Luke chapter 15. Number one is this. Outcasts and sinners were captivated by Jesus. And here's what's crazy about this today. Do you want to know that outcasts and sinners are still captivated by Jesus? That's why you can have a talk and a conversation about Jesus, and lots of times you can get a lot farther than if you start or begin with a conversation about your church. People have had bad experiences with church, and people can still say, I have not been rejected by Jesus. People can have a bad experience with Christians. Matter of fact, I've seen some Christians who can, I would just say, live right up there probably with Hugh Hefner and some of those people, and yet claim Christianity from a moral standard, they are not following Jesus whatsoever. And so what I want you to understand is this. Our relationship with lost people is huge because we have to understand that outcasts and sinners are captivated captivated by Jesus. And so listen to what it says. In Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners, I want you to see this, that God was at work offering his kingdom to outcasts. The very kingdom that the Pharisees were praying about, that when the Messiah came would be established, now the Messiah comes, now the Messiah is establishing his kingdom, and who are the ones who are standing in the way of the kingdom progressing and moving forward? Who are the ones that have a problem with Jesus and the kingdom of God that is moving onward without them? So we have to understand that these outcasts and sinners were captivated by Jesus because he's at work offering his kingdom to these outcasts. And so Jesus has been doing some great works before this parable. Jesus had a way of connecting with individuals who were outcasts in both society and in the synagogue. He went against the grain. You know, growing up, I used to have this coffee cup. We drank hot tea when I was growing up. Uh, My mom still won't drink coffee. But we had this coffee cup that I had on one side. It was all these colorful fish going one way. And it had the white... Christian ichthus fish going the opposite way, and it said, go the other way. And yet, how oftentimes do we want to go with the flow, what everybody else is saying, instead of going against the grain? And Jesus goes against the grain, even against the grain of the religious Pharisees that that they were setting up, things that they had expected. The Pharisees were very against it. Jesus' association with such people to offer them salvation through repentance and faith, listen, at the same time, not participating in their sin. Do you see what he does? Jesus offers them salvation through repentance and faith, and yet at the same time does not participate in their sin. There is a fine line with how we interact with those who aren't following Jesus. That means that I I can hang around with them. I can talk to them. I can spend time with them. I can invite them to my house. I can spend time with them where they're at, but I'm not allowed to what? I'm not allowed or I'm not called to participate in the moral degradation or the violation of righteousness that some of them may want to seek after. My call is something higher. So my call is to righteousness. And listen, here's what's crazy about this. Outcasts and sinners with them being captivated, 
They were, they were deemed by themselves and other people as, as insufficient or irregular. But listen, those who deem themselves as, as religiously righteous are actually excluded and lost, right? Here's the Pharisees who are sitting back, who are saying everybody's held to the standard, and Jesus actually sets the standard, and the religious Pharisees want to work against it. So it's the very people who think they're safe or can save themselves that are actually lost as well. So you have those who are sinners, who are outcasts, who know they're sinners, and then you have those who are religious, who think they're good. Oh, I'm okay. I'm following the law. I'm keeping the law. We're good to go. No big deal. And Jesus says, you're all lost. I came to seek and save that which was lost. And so listen, Jesus attracts or is captivated, uh, or outsiders are attracted or captivated by Jesus. Number two, lesson learned, that Jesus pursues and loves the lost. That's what we talk about here. So outcasts and sinners were captivated, but Jesus pursues and loves the lost. Listen to what he says. Suppose one of you has 100 sheep and loses one of them. I want you to think about it this way. Suppose one of you has $100 and you lose one. What's the common attitude? Ah, it's just a dollar, right? It's a dollar. Who cares? I got 99 left. Here's what Jesus says. Lay the 99 down and go look for the one. That's what Jesus does. Jesus says, I'm going to leave these 99 right here, and I'm going to go look for that one, right? While other people be like, nope, nope, 99, I'm good. I got, I got 99% of what I had. Jesus says, no, leave the 99. It would be the idea to literally count all the 99, leave it on the table and walk away and go looking for the rest of it. You've left it unguarded. You've left it unprotected, which I believe wholeheartedly this, that, that Jesus, when he goes looking after the one, doesn't leave the one unguarded or unprotected. Why? Because he's omniscient, he's all powerful, and he can always do what he has in store. So he can protect, he can guard, he can defend all of those things. But what he's setting out is this idea that, listen, the value of the one is just as important as the value of the 99. And so as a church, we have to ask this question. What is the value of one? My mom's church, matter of fact, Pastor Jeff Manis is at at my mom's church in Element Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming. They have a statement, and the statement is this. If only for the one, What are you willing to do to reach the one? What are you willing to do to reach the one? What are you willing to lay down, to give up, to set aside, if only for the one? See, listen, the persistent shepherd leaving the 99 to go after the one seems crazy, but it's this idea that he is going to search until he finds it. Jesus is going to pursue after those who are lost. He will stop at nothing to pursue and save those who are wandering, those who are searching, those who are looking. Think about a sheep. If you've ever been around sheep a little bit, I haven't been a lot around it, but like they just wander aimlessly if you've ever watched them. They're hungry. Stick their head down and start to wander. You ever taken a two-year-old to a store and left them off a leash? right? You know what I'm talking about. Where'd my kid go? I don't know where he went. You know, I remember when, when, when our kids were little, we got this little monkey backpack that we could put on, especially like when we were in the airport and it had a leash. 
And I remember one person like, wow, that's so mean. It's like they're leashing a dog. It's like, no, at least they can run. They're just close to me. They're not running away. But it's this idea that oftentimes what we end up doing is we, we're, we're, we're searching for this one and, and, and these people are wandering. They're looking for answers. They're looking for direction. They're looking for food. They're looking for everything, everywhere else than what they need to be. And Jesus says, listen, I'm going to pursue after him. And listen, the care and love of the Savior is evident when he puts the wandering sheep on his shoulders and carries it back. Listen to what he says. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. Hear that picture of what's taking place? The sheep has wandered far from home. It's gone away. And when he finds it, he joyfully picks it up. Now I want you to think about this because oftentimes we kind of come in with an attitude of, oh no, it's church or oh no, it's another day. And there's not a joy. There's not a rejoicement. There's not a celebration. There's not a lot of excitement. But listen, the care and love of the Savior is evident. And I want you to think about this, that when we reach a lost person, when a lost person finds Jesus, when they're baptized and they follow in that direction, it's this idea that Jesus pursued them And you and I are a part of that because you and I are called to be the light. We're called to bear forth the message of the gospel. We're called to stand on the truth of that. So listen, this is how the church should be. That the church is led by the Holy Spirit that will search for lost souls. And listen, when we do that, that will hold forth the light of God's word, that will sweep and clean our own place, and then we'll search carefully for the lost. That's what happens in the parable of the coins. That's what it says. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. You know, I just used the $1 to the 99, but think about it, 10 silver coins and you'll lose one. And it says, what does she do? Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? That's what we're called to do as a church. That we put forth the light of God's word. That we sweep and clean our own place. Guess what that means? That there should be no unholy or unrighteous things that take place in our life. That we clean our lives. Now, our cleaning our lives does not mean that I do it myself. The cleaning of my life means that I go to Jesus and I repent and I ask for forgiveness. That I confess my sins. Why? Because he is faithful and just to forgive me of any and all unrighteousness. And as a result of that, then, listen to what happens. Then we search carefully for the lost. This is exactly how the church should be. That we do that. With great care and great worry, Jesus carried the weight and the burden of our sins with him on the cross. And likewise, when we see this idea of him picking up the sheep, he carries the weight and the burden of the lost sheep looking for direction in life and he offers them life and he takes them home. So lesson number one we said is that outcasts and sinners were captivated by Jesus. Lesson number two, that Jesus pursues and loves the lost. And lesson number three, that I believe we ought to celebrate with great joy those who have been lost and are found. The point isn't you finding your way to Jesus. It's Jesus pursuing you, finding you, picking you up and carrying you back to home. That's the whole idea of Ephesians chapter two, verse eight. 9 and 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works. It's not you going around looking for Jesus. Jesus has been pursuing you all along. The simple fact is you're just running the opposite direction. And when you continue to run the opposite direction, 
He'll let you go as long as you want. That's where the parable of the lost son comes in. Parable of the lost son, Luke chapter 15, the very end. The lost son is sitting back. He's got all kinds of wealth. He asks for his inheritance. He takes the inheritance. He moves off. He leaves his father. He leaves his brother, moves off, squanders everything, is basically eating the same junk that pigs eat. And he says, why am I doing this? I can go back home and I can live better by being one of the servants or slaves of my father than I can here. And here's the crazy thing. He does it. Listen to Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 17. He says this, when he came to his senses, right? Anybody ever put yourself in a situation where you're going through life (laughs) and you're like, what the heck am I doing? Why am I living like this? And he literally says this, when he came to his senses, in other words, as the Holy Spirit was working, as Jesus was pursuing after this, he comes to his senses. And it says in verse 18, I will set out, I will go back to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. So here's what I want you to see in verses three through eight, there's a statement where he says, rejoice with me. I have found what was lost. And then there's a statement where it says this, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And then here's what happens. Verse nine, rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. Verse 10, in the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who what? Repents. And then here's what happens. Look at verse 17 and 18. Verse 18. Here's the picture. Father, I have sinned against you or against heaven and against you. What is that? Repentance. There are three themes that we see, or or really two things that are in all three versions, all three parables that we have to understand. That repentance leads to rejoicing. That when someone comes to their senses as a result of Jesus showing them his pursuit and his love, that as they see that, they repent and there's a rejoicing that takes place. Luke believed that the need to repent is universal. That's important for us to understand. The need to repent is universal. And if repentance results in immediate, listen, repentance results in immediate entrance into the kingdom of God, then this also implies that salvation is by grace, not by works. So there's lots of people in today's world who are enamored by Jesus, who are attracted and captivated by Jesus, who continue to still try and do things by works. And what Jesus is trying to communicate to us is it's not about you. That, listen, repentance results in immediate entrance into the kingdom of God, which means it's only by grace that you are saved. And so I want you to think about it this way. There's this repentance. And so the son comes to the father. He repents of everything that has gone on, what he's done, how he squanders wealth. He asks to basically be involved in his father's life as a slave. And his father throws the biggest party ever, right? He steps out. And his father, as he's thrown this party, he says this, bring the best robe and put it on him. 
and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. So they began to celebrate. I want you to think about this. There's this idea that what takes place, there's repentance and then there's rejoicing, right? The lost sheep is found, right? It says that there is more celebration or more rejoicing over the one lost sheep than those who don't need to repent. Then it comes on and it says there's more rejoicing or more celebration over the one who finds the coin or over one sinner who repents. And then here comes this great joy, this great celebration of this son who comes back after squandering everything and feeling hopeless and valueless and useless. And here's what's crazy. The whole picture is this, that Jesus didn't restore him as a servant or, or, or place him as a servant. What does Jesus restore him as? Son. This is my son. This parable carries the picture that regardless of where you have gone, that when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, when you repent, repent and believe, as the Bible says, then you are established as a son, just as that video said. And you will be free. You'll be set free. That anybody who is in Christ is free indeed. Not held back by the bonds and the chains of slavery. And so listen, we have so many things to rejoice and celebrate in the goodness and blessings of God. But listen, I believe some of the biggest and best parties and celebrations ought to be over God's saving grace and work in the lives of those who are saved, those who were lost and then found. And so one of the things that I want to encourage us as a church is that that's our win, that's our goal, if only for the one. That we set aside and we say, whatever it takes to reach the one, Are we willing to pursue relationships with those who are lost? Are you willing to put up with the pain and the agony and the struggle and the heartache and the hurt of those who are going to seek fulfillment in other things and yet still stand on the truth of the gospel? Matter of fact, these parables, listen, this parable is in fact a call for the righteous to repent. Because if you know anything about this parable of the lost son, there's another brother There's a brother who's been remained or has remained faithful the whole time. He stayed at home. He served. He served his father for years. And as a result, though, when the brother comes back, he's ticked off. He's frustrated. He's mad. And as a result of that, the father basically says, listen, the older brother became angry in verse 28 and refused to go into the party. So his father went out and he pleaded with him. And, but he answered, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and I never disobeyed your orders. Keep in mind the Pharisees. Never disobeying the orders that you gave us. We followed the law to a T. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, You kill the fattened calf for him. And listen to what the father says. My son, you were always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
Now listen, there's a lot of parallels there that can take place, but I want you to understand this too, that the Pharisees, unless they came to saving faith through Jesus Christ, were lost. That you could have all the religious zeal in the world, but if you don't pursue a relationship with Jesus first, because Jesus is pursuing you, if you don't repent and acknowledge that, then you are lost. And so here, listen, every time someone repents, Every time someone turns and comes to Jesus, there should be great rejoicing. There should be a celebration. As a matter of fact, in the true spirit of freedom, are you willing to work the harvest, to be the friend of outcasts and sinners, to shine the light of Jesus so there's a party in heaven over those who repent? The church, our church, must continually examine the significance of this parable. We will be the church of the elder brother or we'll be the church of the loving father. What do you choose to do? If you go back and you remember the knife, I looked for two days and I couldn't find it. I was frustrated. I was mad. I was mad at myself. I'm like, you idiot, dummy. You set it down somewhere and somebody picked it up. And all of a sudden, Friday, I think it was Friday night, I was like, oh, it's got to be. And I go running downstairs and I grab the couch and it had fallen down between the stinking seat cushion and the arm of the couch out of my pocket. <laughs> and I want you to think about this. I kept looking for a stinking pocket knife. Let's be realistic. A stupid pocket knife that had intrinsic value to me. It was priceless. Why? Because I can't get it replaced. My father-in-law is no longer here, so he's not going to be the one to buy it. It wouldn't be the same knife, so somebody could come in and go, hey, I got you a pocket knife to replace it. That's great. It doesn't have the same value. But I want you to see this. In my pursuit after a pocket knife that brought me heartache and a little frustration, Jesus loves people so much more than I could ever love a stinking pocket knife. And he's pursuing after you. And he's pursuing after those who are around us on a daily basis. And I want you to think about that as we continue to press forward over the summer. I didn't give up. I didn't give in. I didn't cater. I didn't stop looking, but I kept pursuing. And Jesus continues to pursue those who are around us as well as maybe some who are here today. How do you turn it over to him? Are you gonna chase after him? Are you going to long after him? Are you going to repent and believe, as Luke says? Or do you continue to go your own way? Let's pray. We're going to close with a song. We're going to have Chris and the band come up. As they come up, I want you to think about this. There are two ways for us to respond. Maybe you're a person who Jesus is pursuing after. Jesus is running after you, has been pursuing after you. And right now you're sitting back and going, I don't know. He's pursuing And he wants to pick you up. He wants to put you on his shoulders and he wants to bring you home. And likewise, church, I believe it's our call, it's our responsibility to be people who are gonna pursue relationships with lost people, who are gonna stand on the truth of God's word, holding the light of God's word out, taking care of confessing and repenting and and confessing our sins, but allowing the spirit to work in us. Father, we pray today, that you are honored and glorified, that if somebody here has never put their faith and trust in Jesus, that they would follow you. Maybe there's somebody online 
who is listening, who could say, that's me. That's where I want to be. God, we know that you are pursuing. We know that you long and you chase after me. God, may we be people who take the truth of this parable, the understanding of this parable, and apply it to our life. Because we know that we love because you first loved us. So God, would you have your way? It's in Jesus' name I pray.